Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. As I continue my series on access to real food during the COVID-19 pandemic, I come to a topic I can't be the appropriate omnivore without covering, and that's the meat shortages we're seeing. One way we can avoid these meat shortages is a bill which has been proposed in Congress a while back called the Prime Act. Here to talk with me about the Prime Act is Judith McGeary. Judith is an attorney, activist, and sustainable livestock farmer in Texas. She's also the founder and executive director of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, which supports common sense agricultural policies such as the Prime Act. Judith, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Great to have you here. I'm sure that you've got a lot that's going on now. I know you've been heavily pushing the Prime Act for a little over a year now, so I appreciate coming here and taking some time to let our listeners know what it's all about. My pleasure. This is something where we need as many people as possible aware of the importance of this bill and speaking up about it. So explain to listeners a little bit about what the Prime Act will specifically do if it gets passed. So the Prime Act fundamentally is about trying to improve the infrastructure for local food, particularly local meat. The way it does that is that it removes a federal restriction that currently exists on what's known as custom slaughterhouses, which are some very small-scale slaughterhouses that are already operating all over the country very safely. And it allows farmers to use those custom slaughterhouses to process their animals to get meat for sale. And that would help our small farmers, and it would help consumers better access local meat. Mm-hmm. And how many custom slaughterhouses do we currently have, approximately? I'm honestly having trouble getting that number. Um, <laughs> you would think it wouldn't be hard um, because they're regulated. They're registered and regulated, but they're lumped in with state-inspected slaughterhouses. The best estimate is somewhere probably around 1,500, but that number could be significantly different. And it's something that every state has, at least in some proportion? Yes. They are operating in every single state. Texas, you know, where I am, I have been able to pin down the numbers. We have about 100 custom slaughterhouses in Texas. Hmm. In some ways, that strikes me as a little small for a state as large as Texas, considering that's one of the largest states. I wonder, what is the number for them for some of the smaller states? Well, in some states, it may be as few as three or four. They do exist in every state. These are the processors that do the work for hunters. You know, any place where there's deer hunting or any other kind of hunting, these custom processors are the ones that do that. They're the ones also that process meat for homesteaders and people who are just taking in their cow or their sheep or their pig to process meat for their own table. So, yeah, some states there's only a few, but they exist all over the country. And if the primate gets passed, do you then see the number growing exponentially of these custom slaughterhouses? I don't know if exponentially, but certainly we expect to see the number grow. These slaughterhouses are regulated. They do have to meet standards, but they're less heavily regulated than the current ones that are allowed to sell meat. And so it's much easier to start one up. And there's so much need for small-scale slaughterhouses. Even before COVID, there was a greater demand for local meat 
than what the current slaughterhouse infrastructure could support. Now, with COVID, we're seeing wait times of up to two years at slaughterhouses. So, yeah, I mean, there's this huge demand. And the custom slaughterhouses, there's a lot of these old buildings that have just been mothballed. They went out of business because the regulations were too restrictive. And frankly, there was so much pressure by the government for, frankly, small farms to go out that they drove a lot of this small infrastructure out of business. But their buildings are there. It would not be hard to restart many of these small-scale processors if we got the Prime Act through. Yes. So without the Prime Act, what do you see as the current problem with being able to start up more custom slaughterhouses? So let me try to explain what the current regulations are. I'll just say up front, it's a bit confusing for people, and my apologies. There's nothing I can do about that except <laughs> to try to make it clear. It's not my fault. I didn't write the regulations well, or the language. Sometimes laws are just um, unclear. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes it's just that way. So right now, under the Federal Meat Inspection Act, USDA sets regulations for what is known as USDA-inspected slaughterhouses. They have to meet very stringent restrictions on the buildings, the facilities, the equipment. But the biggest point to understand is you have to have what's called a hazard analysis and critical control point plan, a HACCP. And an inspector from USDA has to be there on site the entire time the animals are being processed. And that's the federal rule. There then are provisions that states can run state inspected slaughterhouses. But, and it's a big but, they have to meet the same standards as the feds. So even though they are being regulated by Texas or Vermont or whichever state it is, the standards are the exact same, including having to have a HACCP plan and having to have an inspector there on site the entire time the animals are being processed. And those state programs are subject to audits by USDA. So every so often USDA comes in and sends their inspectors into the state inspected slaughterhouses and critique whether they think the state is actually, you know, holding up to the exact federal standard. So first of all, these are really expensive things to do. They are tilted very heavily towards large-scale processing. Because if you think about it, to clarify further, it's not an inspector per X number of animals or X number of pounds of meat that you're processing. It's simply an inspector on site. So a huge Tyson slaughterhouse that is processing 400 cows an hour has an inspector there watching these thousand pound carcasses go flying by. You also have to have an inspector at a small scale state inspected processor, which maybe they're doing 50 cows in the entire day. So guess who gets more stringently critiqued? and has that inspector nitpicking at everything they do. It's not Tyson. It's the small-scale guys. These are known as USDA-inspected and state-inspected plants. And so it's very hard for small-scale state-inspected or small-scale USDA-inspected plants to meet these standards, to deal with the inspectors, because the inspectors, frankly, also don't want to take their time driving from one small plant to another, to another, to another in every backwoods town. They'd much rather deal with the single Tyson or Smithfield operation where they've got a nice air-conditioned office all to themselves. They'd sit there. The inspectors, by the way, call HACCP when it was first introduced. They called it have a cup of coffee and pray. (laughs) That was the term among the inspectors because the reality was what started happening is since they had all this paperwork to review, they'd go up to the office that's reserved for the inspector 
they sit there and have a cup of coffee and review the paperwork while these hundreds of cows were being processed in the building around them. It's a bizarre situation where the big guys don't get inspected enough, like they aren't held to stringent enough standards, and the small guys have a really hard time of it. And that's where we stand. And so there aren't enough of these inspected slaughterhouses. You then have this network of custom processors that I've been referring to that are regulated. They do have to meet a whole list of federal standards, but they don't need to have that HACCP and they don't need to have the inspector on site during processing. And they process again for the hunters, the homesteaders, the people who aren't selling the meat. And they do a very good job of it. But a farmer who wants to sell a package of meat at a farmer's market has to go to a state-inspected or a USDA-inspected plant if they can find one to get into. I think that's a very good explanation of it to our listeners, and it does sound like we are ripe for a policy change of that. So obviously that's a major part of the prime act of what it would do if it gets passed. Do you think that's the biggest advantage of it, or are there other major advantages too? The prime act is about reopening and expanding access to small-scale slaughterhouses. I mean, that is what it does. It's a very simple bill. It simply lifts the federal prohibition on the sale of meat from custom slaughterhouses when that meat is being sold within that state. And then the states can set their own parameters. If Texas wants to limit it to -to direct-to-consumer only, they can do that. If Vermont wants to allow sales to restaurants within the state, they can do that. There's going to be flexibility for the states to set the conditions based on what works for their state conditions. And that one piece, I mean, it's very simple. It's very small, but it could make such a difference because, again, even before COVID, the biggest barrier, when I would talk to farmers pretty much anywhere in the country, over and over and over, what I would hear consistently in almost every single town is it's hard to get animals processed. It's expensive. There isn't a small-scale slaughterhouse near us. It's difficult. It's expensive. And in many areas, it just wasn't even feasible. There were farmers who were like, we would love to be selling our meat rather than taking our animals to a livestock barn where they go into a feedlot and Tyson buys them or Smithfield buys them. But we don't have an option. There's no way for us to do it ourselves because there is no slaughterhouse near us that will take our animals. That was before COVID. With COVID, because of the breakdown in the conventional system, the pressure on small-scale slaughterhouses has grown so great that in many parts of the country, there is now a two-year waiting period for a farmer to get their animals processed at an inspected slaughterhouse. Two years. Farmers are having to book a slot to process animals for animals that aren't even born yet. Wow. That's crazy. (laughs) And we're going to see small farmers go out of business. What's mind-boggling about the current situation, there is record-breaking demand for local meat. People have gone, they've seen the problems with the conventional system, they've heard about the breakdowns at the big slaughterhouses, people's eyes are being opened, There is more demand than there's ever been for local meat. And we are going to see small farmers going out of business because they can't get their animals processed and they can't sell the meat. And so they won't be able to meet that demand. In my area, it's a waiting period of about a year now. So for the people who haven't got a regular processor where they've got sort of a scheduled booking each month, if you have to wait a year to get your animals processed, think about this. You are feeding and caring for those animals this entire time and you don't have any income from them. There are a lot of small farmers that will go out of business even as consumers are clamoring for their product if we don't get the laws changed. 
That's a scary thought to see all these small farmers go out of business. We've seen a lot of small business be hurt by the COVID pandemic. By having this bill introduced a little over a year ago, before all this happened, do you think that gives all of this a heads up to have this happen? So actually, the bill was first introduced all the way back in 2015. This is now the third time that its legislative sponsors have introduced it. I'm so grateful to them to, for staying with this issue and fighting for it. What's been fascinating about this situation is we've been talking since 2015 and before that about the need to help small-scale processors, to increase access to small-scale processors, to fundamentally diversify our food supply chain. Fundamentally, you need small-scale, mid-scale, large-scale options so that you have a diversity of who's supplying our food. And frankly, you know, I've been talking about it, other advocates have been talking about that for a decade, two decades. <laughs> and not too many people have been listening. I mean, if some people have, there's sort of a core community that's listened. But frankly, most of America has been like, yeah, whatever. Huh? What are you talking about? There's no problem with the food system. I can go to my local grocery store and look at all of the food and it's so cheap. What possible problem are you talking about? And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, the problem with our food supply became evident, at least some of them became evident to the average American who walked into their grocery store and said, what do you mean the shelves are empty? Why? And the answer came back to the fact that we have consolidated our food system into the hands of a very small number of very large companies. And they have developed a just-in-time system that works great to maximize their profits. And from a perspective of any kind of resilience or diversification is terrible. And they knew that. It's not like this was a surprise. I've been at industry conferences where things have come up about how vulnerable these systems are to any kind of disruption. But their answer is to look for government help to tide them over if they have a problem rather than building a truly resilient food system. Because building a resilient food system is less profitable. Indeed. So again, we go back to the Prime Act, which has been in the works for a while, like you said. So how far are we along now in terms of getting the Prime Act passed? I think we've got a very good chance of getting it passed. Because of the situation with COVID, there has been so much more interest in it than there has been in previous years. We went from having 18 or 19 sponsors to having almost 60 legislators in Congress signing on to this bill from both parties. And it's a fun list, actually. It's some very far left-wing people and some very far right-wing people and some establishment right-wing people conservatives, establishment liberals. It's a fascinating mix of people who you pretty much never see signing on to the same bill. <laughs> Strange bedfellows. Strange bedfellows because it's good policy. It's a common sense idea that small scale food production can and should be regulated differently. And it helps our communities to have local food production. Anyone can support that. So we've got a lot more momentum. It does face opposition. The big agribusinesses, have been coming out against it, beating their chests over how unsafe this is, how threatened the safety of our food supply. The hypocrisy is that there are almost weekly, if not daily, recalls that come from these huge mega 
industrial meat plants constantly. There are foodborne illnesses, recalls, problems constantly. I did a Freedom of Information Act request to USDA and asked them for any documents related to any foodborne illnesses linked to any custom slaughterhouse in the whole country. We asked since 2012. USDA's response was nothing. They have no documents indicating any foodborne illnesses linked to any custom slaughterhouse. I think, could there be an illness somewhere? Yes. There's no such thing as a food or facility that could never make someone sick. Let's be clear about that. You don't get to zero risk with a biological system. But the track record of these custom slaughterhouses is a heck of a lot better than the track record of the conventional food system. But big industries got a lot of power. They put in a lot of campaign donations and they do good sound bites. So their opposition is a major problem. And we have opposition from people who I think mean well, but who are so married to the idea that federal regulation is the gold standard that they can't let go of that theory. And so even though they themselves will say there are problems with how USDA regulates meat processors, they underregulate the big guys. They aren't tough enough on the big guys. Yes, they're too tough on the small guys. Absolutely. We agree with you that this is a terrible system, but no, we can't change it if it means removing any federal regulation. So There are people that are just hung up on that concept. There is significant opposition to the bill, and it's going to be a tough fight to get it into what we're hoping is the next COVID relief bill as a reform related to the COVID crisis. A trend I'm seeing a lot with the natural foods world is some of these natural food companies are getting purchased now by larger conventional food companies. And I know that's even happening somewhat with ranchers. So does that at all help? with some of these big food companies actually being in support of the Prime Act? Unfortunately, it doesn't. (laughs) If anything, it's the opposite. The more consolidation we have, the greater their push is to just keep complete control. They are attempting to co-opt the sustainable food movement by buying these companies, by buying these brands and maintain their corporate profits without having to fundamentally change the system. So unfortunately, you know, this isn't a commentary on any one brand's decision or any one ranch's decision to sell to a large company. You know, that's not my business. But looking at the big picture of all of the effects on our food system, when we have these small businesses, these organic brands, these regenerative brands sell to the large ones. Very rarely have we seen any movement by the large company to then truly support regenerative agriculture and local food. They just take advantage of the fact that consumers want it and this is another profit and revenue stream for them. That's a shame, but I think that raises the case that we still need laws passed such as the Prime Act. What we need fundamentally is a level playing field. And this is something that The big guys claim on their side, well, we can't change regulations because it becomes an unequal playing field. It's like, this is crazy. It is not hard to comprehend that the exact same regulation applied to a facility that processes 400 cows an hour might be overly burdensome and inappropriate when applied to a business that might process 400 cows in a year. Who thinks it's a level playing field to treat those two businesses exactly the same? (laughs) It's not. Who thinks that the market can work well when you have four companies that control 85% of the beef supply? If you go and you look at basic writings about the free market, 
a fundamental principle of how the free market can work is that you have to have many buyers and many sellers. You also have to have the free flow of information. We don't have that. The current system, because of the power of these big companies and because of the consolidation that has occurred, there are some key things. One is envision an hourglass. And at the bottom, you have thousands of farmers and ranchers. And at the top, you have millions of consumers. And in the center of the hourglass, you have maybe 20 companies. If you think about meat and vegetables and processed foods, like all of the different types of foods, there's maybe 20 companies in the center of that hourglass. The market doesn't work. It does not function when you have that situation. The other thing is, and it's one of those things that isn't talked about enough, people think of antitrust and trust busting as this, I don't know what they think about it. First of all, most people's eyes glaze over. <laughs> so hopefully your listeners' eyes are not glazing over yet on me. Most people are like, yeah, whatever. Hopefully they've read their history books about Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, you know, antitrust, Rose, trust busting. What does that have to do with me? If nothing else, very few people think it has anything to do with their lives. But when you read about why Roosevelt was a trust buster, it was for two reasons. One was the economics, making the markets work, having markets that functioned the way the free markets intended to. The other was because there was a recognition that in our system, political power follows economic power. And Roosevelt and many of the others who developed our antitrust laws believed correctly that when you had corporations gain too much control over sectors of the economy, they would inevitably gain too much control politically. And that is exactly what we've seen. We have seen these companies have immense political power. We see them effectively control USDA and FDA, that these agencies have been the term people sometimes use is captured by industry. And so until we develop a system and build the infrastructure needed for a system that diversifies our food system, that enables small scale producers to effectively compete, we're going to keep running into this problem that the big guys write the laws the way they want them written, the agencies enforce it the way the big guys want it written. And at that point, it doesn't really matter. There's an illusion of choice for the consumer, but not real choice. It's fortunate that we do have a good number of politicians all across the aisle from different realms of life supporting it. So in addition to the people in office supporting the Prime Act, what are some other organizations and individuals that are pushing for it? So we recently did a letter. I think we're now up to 88 organizations that have signed on and it's a mix of organizations. There are groups like Weston Price Foundation and the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund who've been outspoken advocates for local livestock production and livestock producers. There's a lot of organics groups on it, small farm, community farming groups. There's also the John Hopkins Center for Livable Communities, which shows that the recognition of how agriculture and food is at the center of community building and that you can't talk about helping people rebuild local communities and community support unless you address the food system. It's an interesting mix of organizations and health freedom groups are on there as well because of the ties between you've got to have access to good food in order to have, be able to take care of your health. So we've got up on the website, farmandranchfreedom.org. People can go read the letter and see who signed on and add their voices. We're taking additional organizations 
and farms and ranches as signatories now before we re-deliver the letter to the Senate. Yes, I'd say the Weston A. Price Foundation and the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund have been a big push in this, and that's how I myself learned about it. I first learned about it a little over a year ago when you spoke on a Zoom conference to the Weston Price chapter leaders, and I know you've also spoken about it to us at our chapter leader meetings at the Wise Traditions conferences, and you've had your booth there for people to learn more about it. Yes, Weston Price, this bill is such a great fit with Weston Price and Absolutely. Weston Price Versa mm-hmm. because animal products are so central to the teachings of Weston Price. Healthy, grass-based, pasture-based animal products are at the center of the Western Price diet. And the organization has such a great commitment to buying local and supporting local farmers who are raising animals the right way. Yes. And so earlier we were talking about how with COVID and the meat shortages, this is a great reason that we should have the Prime Act passed. Another thing that comes to mind is there is just a push for overall safer working conditions during the pandemic in terms of people staying healthy. And I would think that's another reason that makes it more urgent that we pass the Prime Act. Absolutely. One of the problems, again, that we knew of long before COVID, but that COVID has made both more important and more in the spotlight has been the worker conditions in these large meatpacking plants. The workers, I mean, again, let me go back to the number I've used before, you know, 400 cows in an hour. Imagine trying to manage that. And so what you have is you have workers lined up shoulder to shoulder, each doing a single cut, because that's the only way you can move animals that fast. It is dangerous work. You know, they are working with very sharp knives and saws and very sharp equipment. They are working at high speed. It is repetitive motions. Each person is doing like the same cut over and over and over. And so there's an incredibly high rate of injuries in these slaughterhouses. There have been a lot of exposés over the years about how the processors very often will purposefully, very consciously seek out undocumented immigrants. And the reason behind that is because they know that if and when these people are injured, they're far less likely to bring any sort of claim because you know they're here in the country illegally. They can't afford to go sue Tyson for dangerous working conditions or Smithfield, or, you know, I pick on Tyson as the first off my head, but there's several of these companies. And so this has been a problem. These workers are under horrible conditions, and they've been under horrible conditions, and it's inexcusable. Long before COVID, it was inexcusable and a blot on our society. Now enters COVID. The meat packers don't want to slow down. They don't want to space people farther apart. They don't want to give them time to take breaks to make sure that they wash their hands every hour to give them time to use proper sanitation. They don't want to spend the money on masks and personal protective equipment. So they didn't. They just kept running like normal. And they kept running like normal even after there were documented cases of COVID in the slaughterhouses. The slaughterhouses in this country became some of the worst hotspots in the entire country because of the way the workers were treated. And then as this was coming to light, the slaughterhouses were having to shut down or slow their lines down. Instead of taking responsibility for the conditions that they had created, and this is probably why Tyson keeps coming to my mind and I'm picking on them so much in this podcast because I'm so appalled by this, 
Oh, go for them. Pick on them all you want. I don't think our listeners will object to that. <laughs> My only concern is that they're not the only ones. So I don't want to pick on them and make it pretend like it's just Tyson. <laughs> that is true, too. Good point. It's not just Tyson. But I'm so angry because just as all of this was coming to light and they were starting to frankly have to face up to the problems they created. President of Tyson wrote a letter that they took out as a full-page ad in the New York Times and other major newspapers saying, the system's breaking down. Oh no, Americans are facing meat shortages. The government needs to bail us out. Poor meat packers. We need help so that we don't break down and poor Americans have to face these problems. If Americans thought that Having the banks as too big to fail was a problem. We now saw what it means when our food system is too big to fail. And this is exactly what these companies counted on. They counted on when Americans saw empty grocery store shelves and saw higher skyrocketing prices, that there would be pressure on the politicians to bail the companies out, whether they should be bailed out or not. And that is what happened. Tyson publishes that letter, that full page ad. And the next day, I believe, was when President Trump issued his executive order ordering the meatpacking plants to reopen and shielding them from liability, from lawsuits, from the workers for unsafe conditions. And so the companies went, great, we can keep abusing our workers, get back to work. It was disgusting. <laughs> There's no, I really start running out of words. They created these conditions. They profited from these conditions. People got sick because of these conditions. And then they got the government to bail them out and protect them from liability for what they had caused. And that is what's happening still. They've slowed things down a little bit. Finally, there seems to be, they at least have issued masks and personal protective equipment to their workers. The conditions are marginally better now, several months later. But they're still not safe. They're still not reasonable. And they're escaping any responsibility for that fact. Now, to contrast that with a custom slaughterhouse or any of these small-scale slaughterhouses that might have 10 employees maybe 20 employees that can exercise social distancing, that can provide appropriate protections and actually still operate at pretty much close to normal capacity because they're not asking their workers to try to manage 400 cows in an hour. They're capable and they have been continuing to process at their normal rate and protect their workers. So many reasons to pass the Prime Act in order to help small farmers. Of course, a big one is the whole issue of how they've been impacted with the COVID pandemic, and a lot of them are struggling to stay in business due to the demand. Have there been any other ways that these small farms have been impacted directly from the pandemic? There are a lot of ways that the farms have been impacted. On the positive side, I will say the people who sell direct to consumers have seen their demand skyrocket. But even that is a bit of a mixed blessing <laughs> because how do you scale up quickly to meet the demand? It's not cheap. It's not easy to scale up. And a lot of farmers are worried about scaling up in terms of, is that demand going to stay there? Will those same customers still be coming in six months? So there's been a lot of difficulty around that, although those situations are the best case scenario. But let's say you sell at a farmer's market. Most farmer's markets we've managed to keep open, but some have closed. Other farmer's markets have gone to, let's say, an entirely pre-order system 
And so farmers have had to figure out how to completely adjust and shift. Many of our farmers are much older. We have young farmers, but many are in their 60s or even their 70s. What about the farmers who are worried about their own health, who have conditions? I've heard from farmers who have either they have cancer or they have a family member who has cancer or is immunosuppressed. And so they worry about going to the farmer's market and bringing that home to their family. So there's been a lot of stress. There's been a lot of extra expense of farmers having to buy personal protective equipment, hand sanitizer, masks, gloves, all the things that we're required to do if we are going to be at farmer's market. Farmers who were selling to local sourcing restaurants, of course, have taken a huge hit. Farmers who were selling to local schools have taken a huge hit. If they relied on on-farm events for some additional income, those have cratered. So even within our community of the local food farms, there have been farms that have been badly hit. Although, again, some farms are doing very well because of the increased consumer demand. You move outside that community and you look actually at conventional farmers and they have been devastated. There's no upside for them. Because remember that hourglass I talked about earlier, where you have lots of farmers, a few processors and large companies, and then lots of consumers. So when the distribution and transportation and processing chains broke down during COVID, these farmers had nowhere to sell. In the crop world, we had farmers who were simply plowing under hundreds of acres of crops because there was no way to get them anywhere. In the livestock world, I don't think we will ever know the true numbers, but we know that millions of animals were euthanized because these farmers, particularly in the poultry or the hog industry, they are raising the animals, many of them are raising animals under contract with companies like Pilgrim's Pride or Tyson. And so when the meat processing plants got backed up, or the transportation lines broke down, they were told, kill the animals. <laughs> There's no place to take them. And the animals are frankly kept under such horrible confinement conditions that they can't survive being kept for weeks and months beyond their normal time. And so these farmers have just taken huge losses. While beef prices skyrocketed, it became hard to give a cow away in some parts of the country the price for a live cow crater at the exact same time that you saw beef prices in the grocery store skyrocketing. Um, so because, again, of this consolidation, the vast majority of farmers are facing bankruptcy and holding on by the skin of their teeth right now. You talked about how some of these small farmers are benefiting from seeing a skyrocket in demands for their meats. And I've seen some farmers say on their social media of Instagram and Facebook how where there are these big shortages at your conventional grocery stores that with some of these small farms, they still have an availability of their meats. And if that's the case, is that usually due to the fact that they do have a custom slaughterhouse in their area? It won't be a custom slaughterhouse because that they couldn't sell. There are a few small state and USDA inspected slaughterhouses, and that's what these farmers are using already. It's what I use. We sell at the local farmer's market. There's sort of a divide. So there's some farmers that are large enough. They're still tiny by conventional standards, let's be clear. But they're among sort of the larger of our small local food folks who have a standing appointment at their local slaughterhouse for like every week or every month. They bring in a cow or they bring in five sheep or whatever it is. They're still able to access the slaughterhouse because they're just on that slaughterhouse's schedule. So that slaughterhouse is continuing to operate. They're continuing to be able to take their animals in. They can function. 
what's happened and the farmers that are getting the worst hit in the local foods movement are farmers, again, I'll use a personal example, like ourselves. We only process, we're so small that we generally process only twice a year. And then we stock up several freezers and we sell over the course of the next several months from that stocking. Well, what happened, we went to call our slaughterhouse that we usually use where usually they'll fit us in within two or three weeks of when we call. They told us four months, and this was months ago. This was in early April when things first started going haywire. They already were booking out four months, and we had to wait four months to get our animals processed. Now they're booking out a year. We're calling them right now to try to get on their schedule for next spring. So that's the disconnect. Many of the farmers that have meat for sale now locally are the ones that had that standing regular schedule. Or they managed to get in. Now we do have meat for sale because we managed finally to get in. And now we have meat for sale. It's a complicated situation. We need more small-scale slaughterhouses. And again, that goes back to the Prime Act and opening up the ability to use the custom slaughterhouses for us to be able to sell meat from these custom slaughterhouses. Right. It all points back to the Prime Act, which I'm glad to hear is making nice progress and sounds like... It could be passed. In addition to that, I know there's another bill being proposed in Congress known as the Farm System Reform Act. What are your thoughts on that? So this is a bill from Senator Booker, who it's fascinating to watch because, of course, he's from New Jersey. Not exactly a big farming state, even to organic farming. There's not a lot of farming there. Mm-hmm. But he's become very passionate about agriculture and food. And I have to say, and I've talked with his office, I have very mixed feelings about his bill. There are parts of it that are awesome. He brings back mandatory country of origin labeling for meat. You'd think this shouldn't be a hard concept. People should know what country their meat comes from. Believe it or not, it's a difficult concept. We got mandatory country of origin labeling back in the 2008 Farm Bill. And then because of international trade agreement and international trade disputes, Congress backed down and repealed it. So Booker's bill would bring back mandatory country of origin labeling, which is absolutely a great thing. He would also strengthen the antitrust law and bring greater levels of enforcement to the issue of how badly our food system is consolidated in the hands of a few large companies. Again, incredible, incredibly important reform. And then he gets into a reform that's really pretty controversial. And I think the first two, if you ask almost any local food, sustainable ag, independent farming producer community, they'd be supporting it. Where there starts to become a divide. And by the way, conversely, all of the big agribusinesses hate it. (laughs) (laughs) They hate those two things. But then we get into the third part, which is a ban on confined animal feeding operations or CAFOs. What it does is it initially places a moratorium on any new CAFOs, and then by 2040, it's created a ban so that they're phased out. And I understand what he's trying to get at and why. You know, the confined animal feeding operations, the vast majority of them are horrible. They are horrible for the animals. They are horrible for the environment. They are horrible for their neighbors and the communities that they're sited in. They're terrible. The vast majority of them. But I actually know, even though that's not the type of operation I want to run, I run a grass-based operation, I do know some of sort of the mid-size, smaller to mid-size capos that aren't horrible. Again, I don't want to run them. (laughs) That's not my type of farming. But they don't cause an environmental disaster or community disaster. There isn't a good justification in my mind to shut them down. And I also have concerns about this idea of banning 
a type of agriculture. It's a slippery slope that I'm uncomfortable with. And I think, frankly, the better solution would be to get rid of all the subsidies that go to these operations. Yes. Make them pay for the environmental damage they cause. Make them liable from lawsuits from their neighbors if they cause a nuisance for their neighbors. Right now, they're shielded from liability. Make them pay the full cost of grain. Get rid of the subsidy system that makes grain artificially cheap. There's this idea that subsidies benefit grain farmers. They don't. The grain farmers still barely break even. Grain subsidies benefit the people who buy the grain in bulk, like these K folks. Get rid of those subsidies. Make them pay the actual cost of the grain. And I think we would see most of them go out of business. <laughs> they actually had to pay the real cost of operating. Most of them would go out of business. We aren't signing into support of Booker's bill because I think it takes the wrong approach to addressing the problems with KFOs. But there are a lot of good things in the bill. And I understand and share his dislike of the KFO industry as an overarching industry. I think the elimination of subsidies is something that people from a lot of sides on food freedom can get involved with because those who want more laws as a way to solve it, they're all for getting rid of subsidies. But also the people that want less laws, they like that too because it is eliminating something. So it is something I think that unites us for at least people within the natural foods world. So I do want to add, I think what you said was absolutely right. There's so much agreement on eliminating subsidies. I want to make it a little more complicated and get people thinking a little bit about the complexity. All right. <laughs> and this makes me less than popular sometimes with the people who are just like eliminate everything and be done with it. I think we need to eliminate the current system, the way it's done. But if you simply eliminate it and you don't replace it with anything else, you end up with the situation that we had in the 1800s and the early 1900s, where good farmers went out of business for reasons out of their control. Because, again, think about the principles of how markets work. There's something called elasticity, where people can shift. If I'm making widgets and I discover people don't want to pay enough for my widgets to make it profitable, I can switch to making frou-frous. There needs to be the ability to switch and to make changes. Well, agriculture, not so easy. I plant corn in the spring and I discover that the market sucks three months later. It's not like I can just go back and change my mind and plant something else. What do I do with my corn crop? You have this very long lag. You have a lot of investment that has to go in. And you also have things that affect every farmer. So when it's a drought year, every farmer is going to have reduced yield. When it's a year that the weather was perfect and the rains came just on time and everything was beautiful, every farmer is going to have a good yield, right? So what does that mean in the market? Well, when every farmer has a bumper crop, the prices crash because there's too much supply. And when every farmer has a bad year because of the drought, prices skyrocket for the consumers because there's also inelastic demand. People don't eat less in drought years. You know, they don't eat more in good years. And so you have this problem where we saw through the 1800s, through the early 1900s, farmers going out of business or consumers suffering with high prices for reasons that couldn't be addressed through normal market mechanisms. So there are organizations like the National Family Farm Coalition that work on, the word gives libertarians hives, but I'll go with it, it's price support. And it's basically the concept of just, you try to smooth out those curves that have nothing to do with the farmer or their business acumen or how good of a farmer they are, but just smooth out those curves that are just because of the nature of agriculture. So I will say, I think that eliminating subsidies is important and replacing them with a system that addresses agricultural markets. 
What are some other policies which the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance is currently focused on? The other policies we work on, that's not something we spend a lot of time on, although we support it through being members of the National Family Farm Coalition. The bigger issues we work on are things like the Prime Act. Where can we remove regulatory barriers that are making it hard for small farmers to meet the demand for local food? How can we level the playing field? We've worked on cottage food bills. We've worked on bills to require agencies to provide greater clarity in their regulations. We work on bills to increase access to raw milk, to remove regulations. There's a stupid regulation that prevents small farmers from selling eggs to grocery stores if they're ungraded. It's not a safety issue, but it's still a health regulation in most states. So all sorts of different regulations, often at the state level, sometimes linking back to the federal level, that just make it harder unnecessarily for small farmers to be able to provide the food that consumers are wanting. And a little while back, you were talking about how the Prime Act is getting support from both political parties at all ends of the spectrum. Do you think in general that farm bills are something that can be a bipartisan effort? Absolutely. And actually, ironically, I'll say this. We have seen the bad side of that, which is the big agribusiness industry has both sides of the aisle firmly captured, at least some members of both sides of the aisle firmly captured. But we have also seen, I've worked on 20 bills directly so far at state and federal levels, and every single one of them has been bipartisan. I have not had any bill that had only one party on it. And I think it takes work. It's not automatic. You have to step back first before you even get the bill filed and think about where are the areas of agreement? Where are the things that can make sense to people regardless of where their political philosophy is. And you can find those areas. It is absolutely possible to find those areas. And it's one of the things that keeps me doing this kind of work because what got me into sustainable agriculture long before I got into policy work, what got me into being a sustainable farmer is that it's not a zero-sum game. It's one of these things where we can help the environment, help human health, help rural communities and rural economies, help small business, all at the same time. It's not an either or. And that's why I became so passionate about sustainable agriculture. And then when you look at it from the policy side, if you approach it from that same mindset, it doesn't have to be an either or. Where are the changes that can be made in our laws and our regulations that'll help the bottom line profit of a small farm and improve the access to good food for consumers? And there's a lot of places those two things get the same answer. And that gives me good hope that the Prime Act and other bills which will benefit farmers and ultimately benefit the consumers will be passed in the horizon. We're just about out of time, but before we go, tell the listeners where they can find more information about the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. So if you go to our website, farmandranchfreedom.org, we've got a lot of information on the Prime Act and many other issues. Folks can sign up for free email alerts. And I will say this, I know everyone's besieged by emails. It is worth still signing up for more emails. And we don't share your email with anybody else. You're not going to get spammed by other organizations if you give us your email. And I will also say this, you will see a difference when you sign up for our email alerts. When we send out an email alert, it does not have 
a press this button, click here to email your legislator. And there's a reason we don't do it, because those don't work. The legislators throw the form emails in the trash, whether it's physical or they've got the trash box. And they literally will. I talked to staffers who will set up one of those rules, auto rules, that when they start seeing what's clearly a form email through an auto email system coming in, they'll set it up for all of those to get tagged and sent to the trash without even opening them. They don't read them. They don't want to hear an auto email. And it's because they know people aren't tracking those. Too many people do them and then never think about them again. They do want to hear from their constituents. And so what we do when we send out an email alert is we tell you how to call or send a personal email. It doesn't take that much longer. It takes a couple of minutes, two minutes to pick up the phone and call. And it really, truly makes such a greater difference. And I have talked to legislative staffers at the local level, the state level, the federal level, the Democrats, the Republicans, newbies to Congress, old hands in Congress. And I have always gotten that exact same message from all of them. They want to hear from their constituents. They will pay attention to personal emails and even more to personal phone calls. And they do not want to get those auto emails and they are not going to pay attention or give them weight. So I say that, by the way, not just about our email alerts. Think about that on any issue you care about. If you care about the issue, take the two minutes, the three minutes to make a phone call or to personalize an individual email that comes from you directly. You really will make a much, much, much greater difference than click here. That's some good food for thought, literally and figuratively. So again, the address where they can find more information about the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. Our website is farmandranchfreedom.org. That's farmandranchfreedom.org. Wonderful. It's been a pleasure having you on this program. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking with you. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. Follow me on social media for information on the next episode. And to make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts on my website, appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. Until next time, my pantry is officially closed.